Good morning, everybody. So glad you're here. I know you just were uh, standing, but I invite you, would you stand one more time as you go before the text this morning? We do, do, we do two things before we start. Uh, one is we stand, uh, just to distinguish my words from the Lord's. We stand for God's words, and you can go ahead and sit down for mine. Uh, so we make that distinction. We also say a prayer that comes out of Deuteronomy 6 called the Shema. It's this daily prayer, ancient prayer, that helps us kind of refocus on the day, refocus on what we're about to do, so we can come ready to receive. We can come in anticipation for what God wants to say to us today. So say it after me. Hero Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We're going to be out of uh, 2 Timothy today, uh, chapter 3. Uh, just a couple of verses, 14 through 17. So 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. It says this. But as you know, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. A 19th century Christian author by the name of Lloyd Douglas tells this story from when he was in college. He was living in a boarding house with a retired music professor living on the first floor. And that man, he'd sit on his porch every day watching the ever-busy and changing world around him. And each time Douglas passed by, he would ask the man, So today, what's the good news? And the man, he'd take out a tuning fork and he'd strike it on his chair. And as the bell rang out, he would say, That's middle C. It was middle C yesterday. It will be middle C tomorrow. It will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat, and the piano across the hall is out of tune. But my friends, that is middle C. You see, the good news for us is that in an ever-changing and busy world, that we have a middle C. It doesn't change. It was middle C yesterday. It's middle C today. And it will be middle C for a thousand years from now. The good news is that we have a middle C. Now hold that thought for a sec, because what I first want to do is I actually want us to, I want to introduce us to our new sermon series. We've been in the book of David here for about 12 weeks, and we've been kind of looking at David's life, leading us up to Easter, and we had an amazing Easter celebration last week, and we gathered and we celebrated the resurrection, and we looked at Jesus and David and, and that connection in life. And now we're actually making a transition now, and we're going to be starting a new series called The Church Defined. 
And the reason that we're doing this is because, again, as, as we're starting to come back, right, as, as people are slowly being able to get back uh, to church, we realize that we actually need to help define what the church is. I think this last year, we've had to ask a lot of questions about that as we've watched uh, on screens and as we've had to social distance and have we had to cancel uh, a lot of what we do or at least postpone a lot of what we do. It starts to raise a lot of questions about, well, what is this thing that we're doing? What is, what is this thing that we've been absent from for the better part of a year and now are starting to come back to? We need to define the church. So let's go to uh, Ephesians, uh, if you would. If you've got a Bible, flip on over to Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew right in front of you. You can grab that one and you can join with us. In Ephesians chapter 3, we begin, Paul begins to make a case for this church. Paul is writing to a small group of Christ followers in the city of Ephesus. And this group has banded together to form a new community that Jesus named the church. So it's this localized version of this new community that Jesus had established living in the city of Ephesus. And so in chapter 1, as Paul's writing this letter to them, he opens up with a poem. And in it, he praises God for what he has done in Christ. Since the beginning, God has been restoring the world through a covenant people. Since the beginning of time, he has been making and growing this covenantal people. First was the Jewish people in the Old Testament. And now we who are Gentiles get to be included in that. That through the forgiveness and grace of Jesus, it allows anyone to be part of this family. Well, then he moves to chapter 2. And Paul elaborates on these ideas, especially about this new united family in Jesus. The two groups have become, as Paul puts it, a new unified humanity. He calls them a new unified humanity that lives in peace. And so chapter 1 is all about Jesus bringing these Jews and Gentiles together into this covenantal family. And then in chapter 2, he begins to talk more about this new family, this new group, this new covenant community. And he says this is a new humanity that lives in in peace, this new covenantal family. Then in chapter 3, Paul concludes this section of the letter by giving this restored, unified humanity a purpose. He gives them a purpose and a task. He calls this whole thing, this whole beautiful new humanity that Jesus is forming, has formed, he calls it a mystery. He uses that word several times in chapter 3. He says, this, this is a mystery. That, he's, that, that in Christ, this covenantal family in the Old Testament, now there's a new family, the Gentile. They get to get grafted in. Now we become this new humanity together. This is amazing. This is a mystery. And he tells this new group that it's now your task to then share it with the world. You're, you are now to manifest this, this, this wisdom, this manifold wis, wisdom that you have now. You're now to share it with the world. You now, as you live together under the unified humanity, as you live in peace together, you're actually going to display who I am, what that looks like to the world. This is your new, you as new humans, this is your new purpose and your new task. And you would make known this new community, invite others to be part of that, again, which Jesus calls the church. And so we get to Ephesians 10, it all kind of is building towards uh, this passage. And so finally, uh, uh, Paul kind of concludes and he says, His intent was that now, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. So here it is. We're kind of like, all of kind of creation has been like moving towards this point in which now the intent, God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The church is this restored, unified humanity that lives together in peace. And the whole story of the Bible, the whole redemptive plan from the beginning, was to establish a committed people who would make known this grace and forgiveness of Christ as they lived it out together. That's the point. That's the plan. God has no plan B. No contingencies, no opt-outs, no alternative. The church is God's agenda for the world. The church is pretty darn important. It's sort of the cornerstone of this whole redemptive plan God's got going on, right? It's, it's pretty darn important. So what is it? You know those things in life where, like, you know what it is kind of functionally, but, like, if someone said, like, oh, but— but what is it? Like, define it. You'd go, oh, it's a good, it's a good question. It's hard to put it into words. I actually, it's hard to actually say what it is. Well, friends, if, if the church is the cornerstone through the death and resurrection of Jesus and empowered by the death and resurrection of Jesus, if this is the redemptive plan, don't you think we ought to know what it is? Don't you think, and like I said, especially after this year, where we've had to ask lots of questions about what the church is and how do we engage in it and what does it look like? I've been watching it on a screen and we haven't been doing those things, but we have been doing those. And it starts to mess with our mind and we felt, as a leadership, we felt like we actually have to get back to basics a little bit here when it comes to what does it mean to be the church? What is your relationship with the church? How do you interact with it? How do you engage in it? If the church is pretty darn important, how do you treat it? What's your relationship to the church? Because definitions are important. When Molly, my wife Molly and I, when we were in college, early on, I had a thing for her. I had a crush on her very early on into college. She was cute. She was funny, captain of the soccer team. And she was the only Bills fan on campus. Somebody told me this, and I said, I'm going to find that girl, and I'm going to marry her. And I did. I'm pretty proud of that. But it took some work. It took some work, because she was not as fond of me early on as I was of her. I was squarely in the friend zone for quite some time. But eventually, slowly but surely, I wore her down. I wore her down and wore her down, and finally she began to reciprocate some of the feelings that I was sort of sending out. And at that point, we entered into this stage. Maybe you know the stage. It's sort of that vague, nebulous, unclear stage where you're more than friends, but you're not yet totally committed either, right? You're sort of in this weird kind of, what is it? We're a little more than friends, but we're not fully committed. And you know you can't live in that season forever. You can't live in that continuous, indefinite, vague season. Eventually, you have to have the talk. 
right, the talk. In college, we called it the DTR, the define the relationship talk. We'd have buddies that would start hanging out with a girl, and we'd ask them, hey, have you had the DTR yet? Have you defined the relationship? Because eventually you have to define the relationship. You can't just live in that kind of vague, nebulous zone forever. Eventually, you have to have the talk. You need the DTR. I find that many Christians before the pandemic, but especially since it, live in that vague, nebulous, unclear stage with the church. They're more than friends, but they haven't fully committed. Friends, we need to have the talk. We need a DTR. What is it and how is it that we are to engage and interact with the church? What's the relationship status for you? But that's a trick question. And the reason is, is because it's not really yours to answer. It's not really any of ours to answer. You don't decide what you want the church to be. You don't have a say in the matter, actually. The church is not defined by your shifting passions and my shifting passions and desires or relevance or preference. God tells us what his church will be, and then we will either obey or disobey. Those are the only two options. You see, we don't get a say in how the king is going to run his kingdom. We just submit to the king, right? It, we, don't, we, don't become, we don't become members of this kingdom of God and then try to tell the king, well, I'll be in it somewhat, or here's how I will do it. No, the king says, you submit to me, and now I will tell you how you live in my kingdom. We don't actually get a say. This is not up for discussion. Now, this sort of thing happens in our household all the time. I will set a rule or a boundary or a definition, and immediately I'm met with, yeah, but. If I could rename my son Micah's middle name, I'd rename him Micah, yeah, but long. Because it would be really fitting for him. Hey, buddy, it's time for dinner. Yeah, but. Hey, guys, we need to be done now. Yeah, but. Uh, we can't have ice cream right now. Yeah, but. And finally, I realize I'm negotiating with a five-year-old. And so we have this term in our house. We say we don't negotiate with terrorists. This is not up for discussion, buddy. I have set the rule, I have set the standard, and now you will either obey or disobey. There are only two options here. God says, my redemptive plan from the beginning is to establish a committed people who would make known this grace and forgiveness of Christ as they live it out together. There is no plan B, no contingency, no opt-out, no alternative. The church is my agenda for the world. Yeah, but it's my one day a week to sleep in. Yeah, but the preaching isn't that great. Yeah, yeah, but the service doesn't really engage me. Yeah, but something or someone wronged me in the past. Yeah, but we don't really focus on what I'm passionate about. Yeah, but I like to participate in this one area over here, so I'll really throw myself in over here. But all the other stuff, I'm not really into that. So I'll just do, I'll just kind of stay over here, and I'll let others just kind of do that part. 
And eventually God realizes he's negotiating with terrorists. And he says, it's not up for discussion. The king does not negotiate his kingdom to his subjects. He says, submit and live. And it's a great kingdom. It's the best kingdom. It's the greatest way to live. The gospel is the good news to all. We want to live under his rule. It's in our best interest to do so. But it's also not a negotiation. We are told what the church is, and then we will either obey or we will disobey. Those are the two options. See, God has given us essential marks for the church. And as we've studied and kind of prepared for this sermon series, we've looked at people throughout history who have tried to kind of define it, list things out, trying to figure out what these marks are, these defining characteristics of what a church has to be. And as we've looked through, we've kind of compiled it, and we've kind of expanded some and sort of merged a few together, and we've kind of developed about six marks. We said we found kind of these six seemingly, uni- as we've studied it, studied the Bible, studied everything, sort of these six unifying, defining marks of the church. And so what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to look at each one. We're going to say, this is a defining mark of what the church is to be. And if we don't do this, we are ceasing to be what God instructs the church to be. Amen? Ed Stetzer, uh, he's, a, he's a, a, a good Baptist thinker. He puts, it, he puts it this way. He says, there are actual marks of a biblical church. And these must be present at all times and in all places in order to qualify as a church. He affirms this idea that through Scripture, we are given these defining marks of the church that must be present at all times and in all places. It might look different. It most certainly will from church to church. But deep-rooted, these six marks better be there because they must be present at all times and in all places in order to qualify as a church. So what we need to do is we need to take time to think about what God says the church is if we actually want to be his church. We have to have the talk. We have to define the relationship. And this leads us right into our first mark. We're going to look at the first mark today, and that is the mark, the essential, uncompromising mark of the church is our reliance on scriptural authority. It is one of the defining marks. It's what separates us among other things, but this is one of the six things that separate us from any other organization on earth, is the fact that we are unswervingly committed to stand on the solid ground of biblical, scriptural authority. Because how do we know what the church is? Well, we just talked about it. God tells us. And how does God tell us? With his middle C. In all times, in all places, throughout all generations, his scripture rings out, unchanging, unswerving, uncompromising, the rock-solid authority of his word, where we can rest our feet. It's middle, it was middle C yesterday. It's middle C now and it will be middle sea a thousand years from now. We rest on the unchanging word 
of God. Now, continuing on in Ephesians, we've been looking at, we looked at uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3. As the story moves on, Paul actually begins talking about this. As he continues in Ephesians in chapter 4, Paul reminds this new church that they are one. And this oneness comes from a unified faith and knowledge of the Son of God. He says, we are one. We are unified. Jesus has brought you in. You are now a new humanity that lives in peace. You as new humans have a new purpose and a task to show that to the world by your unity, by how you live and love together. And when you do that, people are going to look at that and go, oh, that's, that's interesting. I've never seen anything like that, but it's good. I like it. And Paul says that, that unity that only comes when we reach faith and knowledge, when we together, unified, reach a faith and knowledge of the Son of God. He says this in Ephesians 4. He says, We all must reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves or blown here or there by every word of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This makes sense. We can't be unified if we don't start from the same place. We can't be unified if we're based on kind of how we feel and what we kind of want to do and our preference and things like that. We're all over the place. We'll never, we'll never unite around anything. We have to have a starting spot, an anchor point that says as we kind of move on, we always start from here and build out and we start from something that never changes a middle sea, an anchor point, an unmovable starting place. We have a trampoline at our house, and a few Sundays ago, uh, it, was, it was a nice hot day, one of our first of the year, and so our kids were begging us to set up the trampoline. Oh, can we do it? Like, we, they've been staring at it all, all winter, disassembled. They're like, can we put it together, please? Now, again, this is a Sunday afternoon. We're tired. It's hot. But kind of like me in college, they, you know, I guess it's genetic, they knew how to wear me down slowly but surely. And finally I said, okay, fine, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put up the trampoline today. So we get all the pieces out, we start doing it. Now, if you've ever set up a trampoline before, you know that it's actually pretty tricky. And the reason is, is because you have to start from a very specific place and work your way around. And if you mess up at all, if you ever get off track, you'll get to the end, and what usually happens with the trampoline is you have to set everything up kind of simultaneously, and then you get to this one point at the end, and it's all supposed to lock together and come into place. You've got the thousand springs. You're pulling, you know, every string to snap it on, going all the way around the trampoline, pulling all these strings, and then there's the netting you have to weave into the springs, and then there's the straps. It feels like a thousand straps you have to tie around to cover the whole thing, and you get to this one place at the end where it all comes together. So we'd done it. We'd, we'd, we'd pulled it. We'd pulled all the springs, tied all the straps, weaved all the netting there, and we came all the way to the wet end, and I had this realization. <sighs> we were off. We just missed the right starting spot. I read the directions wrong. But we didn't know we were off until the end. 90 minutes worth of work. And I remember we got to that point. I, I just, Molly would tell you, I just stood there staring at it, going, there's got to be a way to fix this. 
there's got to be a way to fix this. And like slowly the realization is coming that no, the only way to fix it is to take it all apart and do it again. As the kids drinking their lemonade inside are yelling out, are you done with the trampoline yet? We didn't get the starting point right. We didn't get the starting point right. So we went around the circle, happy as can be, not realizing that we were going to meet our fate at the end. <laughs> not realizing yet that come around, it was all going to be offline, off-centered, out of alignment, because we didn't start right. This is what the scriptures do for us. It anchors us and it starts us right, so that as we move around the circle of life together, doing the work that we're supposed to do, we always know that we started from the right place. And that as we go, we have the confidence of knowing we are going to make it. It's going to come together in the end. You see, the early church, they had to deal with those attempting to get them off center too. This is not a new phenomenon. This is something the church has been fighting since the start. Many have attempted to get the church off center. In Acts, uh, Paul is, uh, is speaking in Acts 20. He says this, he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves, he calls them savage wolves, will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. They'll get you off the anchor point. And when that happens, you'll start to, you'll start to get out of line. You'll start to draw away. So they, they were conscious of this even from the beginning. This is not a new phenomenon. He writes in 2 Corinthians, he's talking to the, the, the church in Corinth, and he says, I'm afraid. I'm afraid this is what's going to happen. I'm going to leave, and everything's going to go, everything that I've worked to build is going to go away. He says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if somebody comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or if a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. That's what I'm scared of. That I'm going to go, and because you're not grounded, because you're not anchored in the truth, the very next person that comes, you're just, just going to accept it really easy. It's going to be easy enough. It's just going to—you're just going to go with it. Because you don't have an uh, 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 unswerving commitment to the scriptures. And so you're going to get off track, off-centered. Your alignment will fall. And it is easy to get off-centered, because this is our story today. There's some convincing stuff out there. It sounds good. There has to be something outside ourselves, some instruction to guide us in this truth. And Timothy, who was Paul's mentee, he gives us the answer in the, in the passage we read this morning, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. He says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. 
Because there's all this scripture. It's God's very words. It's, it's God's breath. And it's useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, the first mark, defining mark of the church is its uncompromising resilience on the Holy Scripture as our anchor point. It's what sets us apart and defines us is that that's our starting place. We do not define the church or anything else by our own passions, desires, relevancies, or preferences. We do everything in lockstep with the scriptures, which is the very word, the very breath of God. Friends, that is good news. That is good news, that we have a middle seat. I'd like to call the band up as we kind of reflect on this for a minute. Because like I said, it's easy to get off center. Like the first century, we get tossed around quite a bit these days, don't we? With everything we hear, the news cycles and podcasts and blogs and cable TV programming, the algorithms, the echo chambers, the social media, there is no shortage of things that will distract and distort our sense of truth. And I think particularly this last year, with the world turning upside down, the things that had anchored people suddenly became sinking sand. The things that they relied on and said, this is going to be the thing, this is how I base my life off of, and then everything changed, and all of a sudden they were left a little different and a little more unsure that that solid ground they thought they were standing on wasn't in fact quicksand instead. Lots of people are starting to think through these things. And the good news, the good news is that there's a middle sea. That everything that changes, all the different truths that are presented to us, all the different realities we're told are real. All the new ways that we need to think and believe that were different a day ago, 10 minutes ago, a month ago, 10 years ago, the good news is that that was middle C yesterday. That's middle C right now. And that'll be middle C a thousand years from now. And that our job as the church is to ring that truth out to the world that is completely upside down that doesn't know left from right or up from down. And over the last year, everything has changed. And what we do as a church is we proclaim through our love, through our commitment to one another, and we'll talk about those things, we'll get there, is to proclaim that there's a middle sea. That you can rest your feet on something. that you don't have to live wondering what's right. But I can rest in the truth of Jesus. And then we ring that out to the world. Let's pray.
thank you, God, that on Christ the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And that you have given us your middle seat. 